This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we are going to return to the war in Ukraine. It's a topic we have covered a number of times before. It has been a few months now, in part because of the uh, density of other crises and materials that have come before us. But the war in Ukraine, as most of our listeners know, is a war that has been going on for about two years and has no end in sight. And it's a war that does appear to be reaching some kind of turning point as uh, the United States and its allies consider, and uh, with little agreement, consider how to and whether to supporting the defense of Ukraine by its people. The Russian government appears to be as intent as ever on continuing to prosecute this war, and it seems uh, more than ever that Americans consider uh, their particular role in this war and what we hope uh, to achieve, as, as would be the case for all of our allies. We are fortunate today to be joined by a good friend of the podcast and someone who is doing the best work, I think. Uh, in the United States and anywhere uh, on covering the war, putting the war in historical perspective, helping us understand the stakes in the war and understand what's actually happening. This is none other than Dr. Michael Kimmage. Uh, Michael, thank you for joining us again. Wonderful to be back with you both. Dr. Michael Kimmage, as many of you know, is a professor of history at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., uh, he's involved with many institutions, the German Marshall Fund, the Kennan Institute, the Woodrow Wilson Center. Uh, most uh, significant, perhaps, for our discussion, he also served in a policymaking role, an important high-level policymaking role from 2014 to 2017 in the State Department, where he worked for the Secretary of State on the policy planning staff, covering precisely the issues, precisely the region that we're talking about today. Michael has written, I think, um, articles that have been widely read in the last two years, uh, dozens of articles for foreign affairs and other major publications on the war. He's also the author of many important books. Uh, just a few of them include The Conservative Turn, Lionel Trilling, Whitaker Chambers, and Lessons of Anti-Communism, The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, which is just a, a brilliant uh, book. I really enjoyed that and highly recommend that. And his new book, which I've had the chance also to read in advance, which will be out, I think, for the general public in the spring. Michael's new book is called Collisions, The Origins of the War in Ukraine and the New Global Instability. I think this will be the book really contextualizing and historicizing this war uh, for us today. So Michael is clearly the right person to be talking about these issues, and he's the right person to help us understand where we are in this conflict and how we should think about it today, especially from the perspective of the future of democracy. Before we turn to our discussion with Michael, of course, we have Mr. Zachary Suri's scene-setting poem. Zachary, what's the title of your poem today? For a World of Wars. For a World of Wars. Let's hear it. How can one think of war as something that occurs to real people and real towns, and not just a wave that passes through the spinning wheel of history like a brook at a paper mill churning out death notices and a funeral invitations no one will keep? How can it be that as I splash my way through puddles on the old yard, in that very same instant as the boot breaks the water and sends it flying like bombs, there are bombs flying like raindrops from the sky, on a town without a name that is nameless only because it is too difficult to say home when no such feeling remains. When we were flying back from New Delhi, we had to fly between the wars on a narrow strip of air that churned with anger at each of the airplanes sticking in its throat that spit us out into Romania as I threw up uncontrollably, hurled at 500 miles per hour away from two wars and probably a thousand more. How can you say I have seen nothing when each of those children who fight our wars shares their eyes with me, peering out of each foxhole with a mix of terror and ferocity, like something bitten and bitter, and waiting for its moment to say, now is the time to question, beware, be wary, before it's you who sits here singing, it's a long way to Tipperary. 
Zachary, I had forgotten until you started reading it how graphic this particular poem was. <laughs> Thank you for helping me to relive our our, fly, our our sick flight with you from New Delhi. <laughs> what is your poem about, Zachary? My poem is about the seeming ubiquity of wars in our world today and how it can often seem hopeless and as if those wars are inevitable. Um, and even though some of them, perhaps even most of them, are necessary um, or are fighting for, for, for meaningful, meaningful goals, um, how hopeless um, a world, the world can seem when it is so filled with war and how important it is to remember that there can be another way but also that if these wars and such violence and conflicts are allowed to fester, that they will and do affect all of us. Sure, sure. You know, Michael, I was going to close with this question, but Zachary's poem really puts it right on the table. I mean, you've been covering this war so closely. You've been living this war. Um, how, how do you feel? How do you, how do you cope with that? Well, um, it's 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 a it's a very good uh, and uh, important question. I think um, one risk uh, is you cope with it by being very technocratic, um, and you break it down to questions of decision making. Uh, you break it down to the many logistical questions that accompany any war, provision of weaponry, the political economy. Uh, of war in the case of Ukraine, you have issues of, you know, the grain deal and uh, you know, sort of naval questions, shipping questions, questions of how the railroad system functions, and all of that you can kind of deal with technocratic, technocratically. I don't think that that's the wrong approach. I think it's 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 valuable, but it's in some ways to put the emotions very very far from the center uh, of uh, of what you do. I think that when you bring the emotions back in, as, as Zachary always does so beautifully with his poems, he invites those emotions back in. Uh, what you do have to do uh, is, uh, is to pace yourself. Uh, and Zachary also used the word hopeless, and I think that that's uh, an unavoidable emotional reaction uh, to war, even wars that uh, in the end will be victorious. Uh, on the right side, that feeling of hopelessness comes uh, to the fore, but you have to pace yourself and at the same time urgently remind yourself uh, exactly as Zachary's poem does of, uh, he repeats the word, the adjective real twice, uh, real people, uh, real towns of the human reality uh, at the uh, at the core of war. If, if I can say a word about the book that I've just written Please. about the war, I think it is, I mean it to be, uh, and I try to imitate the style of Thucydides, who was famously dry in the way that he wrote about war. Uh, but uh, uh, I conclude the book with a reference uh, to the Odyssey and the Iliad uh, and to the, remem the remembrance of suffering uh, and to the emotional nature uh, of the war, because I think that that's the only ending the conversation uh, can have. But as a practical matter, I think that the emotions have to be controlled uh, so that they don't you know, lead you to sort of disarray uh, and I, I suppose for me, the way that, that, that that's done best is, is, uh, is to concentrate on the, uh, on the practicalities, but you do the, you, you concentrate on the practicalities, hopefully with a moral urgency that comes from the human realities underneath, uh, and to keep all of that in balance is not easy, but, but essential. And, and it does seem to me that it's a constant balance and a, and an everyday checking yourself, right? Whether you're distancing yourself too much at that moment or whether you're, you're getting too close, right? I mean, you have to constantly readjust, I imagine, right? Precisely. And what I've come to understand in the course of this war, it's never been clear to me before from my own personal experience, but what I've come to understand is the seesaw nature, emotional seesaw nature of war itself, which I think we know from studying a lot of wars historically, that people who go through them have these moments of superstition. They have moments where rumors play a very prominent role. Um, really where they appeal to the kind of irrational uh, and wars are uh, in, in their essence, I think quite, uh, you know, sort of irrational. But I understand that a lot better now because of the way in which, you know, news will just affect you in certain, uh, in certain ways. And I kind of look back at the last six months and I realized how many things I misjudged and got wrong. Uh, and part of that is from being on, on this emotional 
uh, seesaw. But I think that that's very much the experience of war. And I suspect if we would have a chance to speak in detail uh, to Ukrainians, that we would get that with a, a great deal more uh, intensity, because obviously their emotional seesaw is uh, is at ground zero. But um, I've never understood this quality quite as well as I feel uh, I do at the uh, at the present moment. You know, I sort of look back at World War II and. Uh, you kind of know that this, that 1940 and 1941 were, uh, for the Allies, a very, very difficult period where things looked uh, impossible. And then you kind of know also that after Stalingrad, it's a bit different. But now I feel like I feel those um, uh, those uh, enormous mood swings uh, much more much more intensively. So sure, putting sure. the most positive spin on it, Jeremy, I think it makes me uh, maybe modestly a, a somewhat better historian to have to yes. have that knowledge. Yes, yes. And to be self-aware, of course. Uh, Zachary? How do you think your understanding of the war and what it means in particular for Ukraine and for Ukrainians has changed in the last uh, years, months of war? Um, I, I mean, I, I know that we've reflected in past episodes um, how what we predicted on February 24th or February 25th um, was wildly different from what occurred. Um, but do you think maybe those some of those same anxieties are returning? They are. This is, you know, clearly, with with the exception of the first maybe two three weeks of the war, probably the bleakest phase uh, that we've lived through uh, so far. So, in answer to your questions, actually, I'll just fa- say a few words about what in my mind hasn't changed so much about the war, uh, and I'm glad that we have such a long record of conversations among the three of us uh, that I, I hope that these points will ring true to you. Uh, and then uh, would like to say something about what uh, what is changing in my mind in the in the in the present moment, and uh, I think it will sound a little bit more optimistic than you might be expecting from uh, uh, from from the prompt. I think I did expect this, um, even sort of going back to the summer of 2022, to be a long war. Uh, certainly was not alone in that. That was a prediction that many people uh, made, uh, and it did seem to me. Um, that the simple size and scale of both countries uh, uh, argued uh, in favor of a long war. Uh, what the Ukrainians proved in the first month of the war, uh, their own resilience and things that we've discussed in great detail, Zelensky's leadership, et cetera, et cetera, gave me confidence that Ukraine uh, would in no way back out of the war. Uh, I was surprised at the beginning, the first couple of months, about the popularity, such as it was, of the war in Russia. That, to me, came as a, a bit of a shock. But what doesn't surprise me is the extreme intensity of Putin in his prosecution of this war. I think that he made this a top-line effort. This is a fairly obvious point, but it bears a degree of emphasis, uh, a top-line effort, and that he would restructure Russian life, economic life, social life, political life around the war, I think, is not surprising. And again, that is part of this uh, you know, sort of longevity of war that... Um, uh, is, uh, I think, in a way, really sort of settling in psychologically uh, at the present moment. For that reason, as mentioned in a number of other conversations, I won't belabor the point. We'll just quickly kind of re-mention it. Uh, you know, what I've been proposing as a strategic posture for the U.S. is a posture of containment, uh, not a passive containment of Russian military power, and not one that's purely defensive in nature, and not one that puts Ukraine on its back foot, proactive uh, with lots of strikes behind uh, enemy lines for uh, Ukraine, but nevertheless containment in the sense of something that doesn't require a theory of victory, uh, but can be pursued for a long period of time, and in which one of the essential ingredients is patience. Of course, that's you know something that we'll get into in a moment in terms of the U.S. Congress and, and Europe and all of that, but uh, in an ideal world, uh, we would have uh, almost unlimited patience when it comes to this conflict because of the demands that containment places on a country and its partners and allies uh, in the midst of a uh, of a war. Final point I'm going to make about a bit of a surprise, and this is uh, an element of optimism up to a point, uh, is how slow the going has been uh, for Russia. Let's go back to mobilization that Russia announces after the huge setbacks that Russia experiences in September, October, November of 2022. This is around Kharkiv, and then eventually Kherson. And southern Ukraine falls to to Ukraine, I think, by November of uh, 2022. And after that, you have mobilization in Russia, and you have the Russian economy to a degree booming, and a set of fairly uh, 
robust relationships for Russia to the outside world, China, India, Brazil, South Africa, uh, Middle East, etc. cetera. Uh, and with all of that, and with what was still on paper in February, 2022, one of the world's most formidable militaries and definitely a big economy and a very, you know, sort of hellbent uh, president on doing something, um, you know, to Ukraine, uh, since the fall of 2022, Russia has almost not progressed. Uh, it spent enormous efforts and materiel on conquering Bakhmut, a city of 70,000, a very questionable strategic uh, value. And even now, in our winter of discontent about the war, if you look closely at the details, Russia has been expending huge resources on a town uh, of Dievka, uh, and that's not a town that Russia has conquered, even though it's, you know, expended huge amounts of blood over the course of the last couple of weeks uh, to fight uh, the war there. So I think that this is the the sort of final point that I'll make, that it's a bit of a surprise to me that things are in such a bad position for uh, Ukraine, uh, you know, especially in terms of uh, Western support. That's coming as a bit of a surprise. But it's also a big surprise to me in a sense that Russia has uh, stalemated in this war. And we do need to emphasize that point at the moment, in part, perhaps for political purposes, to maintain our own morale. Uh, but I think we need to emphasize that p point for the sake of proportion in understanding this 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 war. In a sense, it's a tough moment for both sides uh, of the war. Uh, that's unfortunate regarding Ukraine, uh, but uh, it's uh, you know something that has to be remembered in terms of where Russia is uh, at the present moment. Stalemate for a country like Russia over the course of an almost two year war is a surprise. Yes, yes. Well, certainly uh, Vladimir Putin expected a quick victory, and to some extent even the American intelligence agencies and many other observers expected uh, a relatively quick victory, at least for Russia taking control of Kyiv and forcing the Zelensky government to flee or to collapse. Uh, and it is extraordinary uh, how, how difficult this has been for Russia and how difficult it remains for Russia. Before we talk about U.S. support and, and other external factors, Michael, uh, how would you assess where the war is today? There was hope months ago for a, an offensive by the Ukrainians that would push further into the area occupied by Russia in, in Ukraine. That has not fully materialized. There was talk then of Russia making its own offensive. That did not materialize. How would you describe the war where it is today? So it's, uh, you know, all of the points that you make are extremely uh, important. Um, part of them are about expectations. That's certainly, I think, for Ukraine, but for, for the United States and for the countries backing Ukraine, there was a set of expectations over the summer and the spring. It goes back to the big successes that Ukraine had in September and October of 2022, and the big successes Ukraine had pushing Russia out from the vicinity of Kiev and uh, northern Ukraine at the beginning of the war, that this created a set of perhaps inflated expectations, maybe a overinvestment in what technology could bring to the war in terms of weapons being provided to, uh, to Ukraine. And there's been a pretty harsh readjustment from that over the course of the last uh, couple of months. So part of it is about uh, expectations, and I think that there is a strategic readjustment going on in Washington, in Kiev. Hard to know exactly what that is, uh, and that's proceeding from a new set of expectations that are, you know, again, you know, sort of difficult to characterize, but um, uh, very far from the sense that there'll be a counteroffensive anytime soon, or even if there would be, that this counteroffensive would be the knockout blow uh, in uh, in the war. Uh, there are, you know, subsidiary points that are worth teasing out. So the territorial war has, for all the reasons you mentioned, Jeremy, uh, not gone forward uh, especially quickly uh, over the last couple of months. Uh, and it's going to be quite a while before Ukraine returns to offense. But the naval war uh, has yes. scored a couple of successes for Ukraine. Uh, this is, you know, making Crimea a more difficult place to store naval assets uh, and to strike uh, you know, th those parts of Ukraine that are not under Russian control. It's now more difficult from Crimea. And quite remarkably, Ukraine has punched a hole through the Russian Navy. Uh, and this is allowing Ukraine to ship its grain uh, through, the, through the Black Sea to the Mediterranean and to the wider world uh, in what's a very positive development for 
for Ukraine. So that's, uh, you know, not the dominant factor of the war. Uh, that would be an exaggeration, but it's a salient fact of the uh, war, and it goes a bit against the direction of uh, a stalemated war or a, a war in which Ukraine is is being pushed entirely into the uh, into the defensive. Uh, on the Russian side, you know, I, I would just repeat what I said a moment ago in terms of uh, having withstood the counteroffensive, which I'm sure the Russians think of as a uh, victory. Uh, but on the other hand, Russia has had uh, an enormously difficult time going on offense, uh, and it doesn't seem like that's going to change uh, anytime soon. It's clear that Russia will be making huge strikes on civilian infrastructure, critical infrastructure in Ukraine over the course of the winter. You had the hacking attack on the telephone system in Ukraine over the last uh, 48 hours, you know, consistent attacks on Kiev and other places. Uh, and that's, you know, quite ominous in terms of what it could do just to social cohesion and solidarity uh, over the course of the uh, of the winter. It could be quite a despairing winter in Ukraine. That's, that's, that's sort of one possibility. And then the other rather ominous note in terms of configuring the various forces of the war is that Russia has been pouring money into armaments production, uh, and that has been paying dividends as far as one can tell in terms of available artillery munitions and, uh, and missiles and drones. Uh, and, you know, the Western side of the story, it's not just congressional funding for the war, it's just been slow uh, and piecemeal. So in 2024, Ukraine is just not going to have a huge amount of material available to it. However much money is spent on Ukraine, uh, some of those stocks have just been sort of spent down and the rate of production is slow uh, on the Western side. That apparently will change circa 2025. And with that, the war itself could change. But we are looking at the calendar year of 2024 as um, a, a very tough year. Uh, and it would be a disservice to everybody involved, uh, I think, to try to put a rosy picture on that at the present moment. It's 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 a convergence of, of, of circumstances that's going to make 2024 uh, very difficult. Do you think do you think that um, ordinary Americans, ordinary Europeans, and those in other countries allied with Ukraine have forgotten about the Ukrainian cause or have have ceased to to consider um, Ukrainian democracy as something that should be at the top of the agenda of their politicians? I don't think forgetting is correct. <clears throat> I don't know exactly how to measure this. Uh, in our society. I, I do see fewer Ukrainian flags in the city of Washington, but I don't know what that really uh, tells us. Uh, you know, if you look at polling data, if you look at our basic political culture, I think it is correct, fair and correct to say that more than a majority of Americans or a majority of Americans support Ukraine and support continued assistance to Ukraine. That is a considerable portion of the Republican Party and a very considerable portion uh, of the Democratic Party. And I don't think forgetting, you know, you had Zelensky in Washington this week, and, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of Ukraine news in the coming months. Uh, and so I don't worry so much about amnesia. Uh, and, you know, Israel Hamas war is, is very significant. It deserves a lot of media attention. Uh, and it's sort of inevitable that other crises are going to arise. Uh, and that will all have to be balanced. But um, Ukraine has gone down a notch or a couple of notches in the news, but it's it's certainly still, still there. I think the two things that have changed with the war, if I can judge public attitudes, uh, is that the fear uh, that was there at the beginning, I think this may be more a European story than a US story, but there was a fear that the war would spread quite quickly to Western Europe, or that the war would spill over into NATO countries. There was a fear very much engineered on the Russian side in the autumn of 2022 that the war would go nuclear. And that fear compelled a kind of attention. Uh, and that fear was very much a part of the support for Ukraine in the first year uh, of the war. And I think that that fear has dissipated. And so politicians who want to support Ukraine need to take note of that. I wouldn't argue you know, so much for pressing the fear button, although I think now and then it should be pressed. But uh, they need to think of new narratives and new frameworks that are maybe a little bit less based uh, in fear, although if the war would go very badly in the next year, some of those fears uh, could return. This, I think, is the this, this sort of additional point that I'll make additional to fear uh, is, um, to me, more upsetting and more uh, regrettable. And it goes back to your poem, Zachary. I think that people have lost their sense of the horror uh, of the war uh, in Ukraine because the images that came from Bucha and Irpin and sort of 
April, March, April of 2022, when, when Russian forces pulled out of the north and, and people could see what happened, the sense of the sort of war crimes, um, you know, the attack on the uh, on the train station, I think it was in Krematorsk that killed a huge number of people, young people, Mariupol, and the destruction of Mariupol, and the and the and the, the airstrike on the theater there, where, where many children were were killed. All those feel to me like horrific stories that are there in the first year of the war. But uh, as both of you know, the second year is equally horrific uh, of this war, and what's still to come is going to be uh, as horrific as the war has been uh, already. And yet, I think our sensitivity to that. Uh, has uh, diminished, and there, you know, sort of Israel, Hamas, and a sort of another major war uh, is 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 probably uh, a factor. But if you don't have fear and you don't have horror, you do have to think about what the motivating factors are for people to engage with the war, think about it, feel a sense of uh, investment. And there, uh, I think it would be impossible to say that there has not been a a shift or a change, or perhaps just a diminishment, uh, and you know, sort of unfolding before our eyes, but. Uh, uh, you know, we spoke earlier about surprises. This is a this is a surprise that an unfinished war could sort of lose uh, its sting to a degree, and and that does seem to be happening. And, and Michael, are you really surprised by that, or is this, in a sense, what what um, Putin was counting on that Americans would tire of supporting this war, that Germans would tire of it? And that other political concerns, concerns about another region, but also concerns about trying not to give the sitting president a victory of any kind, that these elements would 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 interfere um, and that this is a different moment from the Cold War when there was such a strong consensus on containment. There's not that there's not that same consensus in American politics today, nor in West European politics. So so is this a surprise or is this sort of the natural second stage of the war? It's a it's a wonderful question. I suppose we could break it into two parts. You know, is this what Putin was expecting? Is this what, uh, what we were expecting? Is this what we should have been uh, expecting? Let me start with, with Putin. Uh, I don't want to give him too much credit in this regard. I think that he thought it would be a very quick war, uh, that for Europeans it would just seem like a fait accompli, that the U.S. wouldn't like it, that it would create a transatlantic rift, um, you know, that he could kind of rewrite the story of Europe uh, on the basis of a rapid and glorious uh, Russian victory. So I doubt that in the initial planning of the war, uh, there was much speculation in the Kremlin about what things would look like in 2024 uh, or what a long war would look like because it does seem to me like they were expecting something short. So there was a long scramble after that. And you know, there's been a lot of readjustment and, uh, and adaptation. And some of uh, what Russia says in this regard about the West being in decline, the United States being in decline, dissension, division, space between elites and populations. Some of this is definitely a kind of propaganda narrative. It's what they want us to believe about ourselves. Uh, and so there's every reason in wartime why Russia would project this narrative. Uh, does Putin believe it, you know, sort of 100 percent? I'm not uh, I'm not sure. I think Putin wavers between contempt for the West and, and, and fear of the West and the feel it fear is certainly still there. Uh, but let's, you know, sort of give Putin his due in this regard. He is a fairly diligent student of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And I think what he did notice in those wars is that there was a kind of intensity of purpose at the beginning, high degree of media attention. And it's not as if partisan divisions sort of blocked uh, the U.S. and Afghan, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, but uh, it's more that the country kind of lost its attention. Uh, its attention span uh, was uh, somewhat short. And when these wars began to seem intractable, um, there was a sort of powerful move to just move on from these uh, from uh, from these wars. Uh, and the level of sacrifice, this is a Putin's judgment, <laughs> kind of goes back to some things that bin Laden said before September 11th, the willingness to sacrifice uh, is, is limited uh, in the West. I'm not saying that this is my judgment. I think that this is sort of Putin's judgment. Uh, and is probably a factor in the way that he conceptualizes the war uh, at the uh, at the present moment. So does the West have the wherewithal? Uh, and Putin would not have waged this war if he believed that the West had the wherewithal uh, to contend with Russia in this regard. Uh, and um, no doubt he is selectively reading things at the present moment 
uh, and probably feeling uh, to a degree uh, vindicated. Should we have been surprised by uh, some of this? Um, uh, perhaps so. Uh, and I'm not sure if we can go back, you know, sort of a year, two years into the war and say, uh, in terms of some of these developments, the difficulties of being involved in a long war, if we should have done something differently, maybe one small thing we should have done differently. Uh, we should have been a little bit more careful with the notion of Zelensky as the Hollywood hero, uh, as somebody who, by virtue of his grit and charisma and decency, was sort of inevitably predestined uh, to prevail uh, in this uh, in this conflict. There was a bit of that maybe in the first six months of the war, and it did seem to be being borne out on the battlefield. And I think we probably overcommitted ourselves uh, to that narrative. What we should have done is had a somewhat more sanguine view, perhaps, of Zelensky. It's not a matter of supporting him. The support is, is, is in order. Uh, but we should have understood that he's a man who's juggling a lot of balls and has his limitations. Uh, and we should have and should still base our optimism on broad-based uh, Ukrainian resilience, acknowledging that the war is going to have uh, a lot of ups and downs. So I think that there were a few narrative mistakes that were made. I'm not sure by whom. It's not really the Biden White House. Maybe it's uh, a media mistake, or maybe it's an expert mistake to sort of uh, configure Zelensky in this uh, uh, in this narrative manner, and we're paying a bit of a price for it. But otherwise, I can't see things that we really should have done uh, differently, but we just need to think creatively about the sources of our own resilience. That's the worth of really discussing this kind of uh, question and, and, uh, and, you know, sort of think about how, uh, think about how we can build that up rather than, you know, sort of uh, uh, maybe indulging too much in self-criticism. Uh, it's more just understanding the nature of our resilience and uh, enhancing uh, and, en and enhancing that resilience. What do you think, Michael, though, is at the core of the objections to continued funding, because many different arguments are made. Some say this is just getting too expensive. Uh, others, I think the House Majority Leader uh, Johnson today made the case that he hasn't seen a strategy for winning from the White House. Um, some have argued there should be other priorities. Uh, there are various arguments out there. What do you really think is at the core of the hesitation by many Republicans and it seems sometimes also by some progressive Democrats to support continued funding for Ukraine. Well, for progressive uh, Democrats, it's um, to me not so easy to understand. I mean, I think you do have a figure like Bernie Sanders, who's um, been, you know, strongly behind support for uh, Ukraine from the from 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 the beginning, uh, and represents at least one pillar of progressive Democrats that's not rethinking the war uh, or uh, or changing gears um, you know I suppose from a from the vantage point of progressive Democrats that the expense is uh, probably an issue vis-a-vis -vis, uh, other possible uh, priorities uh, and you know if lack of an end game is a factor there well perhaps it could be a, it's, it's 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 hard for me to say but that is um, yeah, to a degree, uh, perplexing. Uh, in terms of the 20 Republicans in the House of Representatives who are um, <clears throat> anti-Zelensky, anti-Ukraine, uh, you know, sort of eager to wrap things up, um, maybe this is a superficial analysis, but it seems to me like it's a highly theatrical position, uh, that it's uh, tacitly or explicitly a way of supporting President Trump, uh, uh, candidate Trump, in, a, in an election season. Uh, consciously, it's a way of hitting out uh, at the Biden administration with the suggestion that the Biden administration has mismanaged the war uh, and is strategically uh, incompetent. And it also seems theatrical in the way that our politics often is the kind of pleasure of being against something uh, and uh, sort of appealing to certain kinds of uh, instincts uh, out there uh, in the electorate, uh, in the American population through a theatrical uh, negativity. I say that because I don't really see a very effective counter-argument for how uh, the war could be wrapped up. If Speaker of the House uh, Johnson feels that there isn't an endgame in the White House, why doesn't he come out and propose uh, a viable endgame uh, and suggest what it is that uh, the White House is missing? Uh, but I, su I suspect that the reason he doesn't do that uh, is because that's a very difficult thing uh, to articulate. I mean, he could suggest that the U.S. withdraw from Ukraine, uh, and that would demand taking responsibility 
for that position, which I think is a hard thing to do. And Johnson has made a couple of, I don't know, hawkish, but, you know, sort of pro-Ukraine statements as well. Uh, and so I think that there's a kind of ambiguity there. And then, of course, anybody is free to argue for a, a negotiated settlement uh, to the conflict, but you haven't heard much of that uh, either. So it's, um, you know, a set of agendas that are linked to domestic uh, politics from a fairly small number of people, uh, and yet it's holding the entire process uh, hostage. So it's, um, you know, I think a rather uh, irrational situation. It does not feel like a you know, sort of healthy uh, or productive debate about the issues, which would be fine. That's always a good thing to do in wartime. What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? What could we doing? We'd be doing better. What's an alternative strategy? Uh, all of that would be great. But this just feels, you know, sort of much more, uh, you know, sort of piecemeal, uh, chaotic, disorganized, and minority-driven, which I think is, um, you know, surprising. Of course, Congress is a co-equal branch of government, and it's not bad for Congress to have a different view from the executive branch, but for a sort of accidentally small group of people uh, to have this degree of power is, um, it's, I'll, I'll just put it this way, it's, it's quite unfortunate yes. uh, how it's all playing out in, in, in this regard. You, know, you yes. could imagine a different a different structure where it would be pro and con in a real debate, but this is not that. Right. It, it doesn't actually seem like they're having a real debate about the issue, as you say. No. It sounds like they're they're posturing, uh, particularly a small group who, uh, for whatever reason, and one can agree or disagree with them, but for whatever reason think it's valuable to posture against this without offering an alternative. I mean, it does seem to me, uh, and just, you know, I suppose tip my political hand here, but the linkage of Ukraine with questions related to immigration and the southern border uh, of the United States seems to be without logic. It's just, a, to me, a non sequitur. It's a strategic non sequitur. And um, and yet that for J.D. Vance and for many others is, you know, sort of a key Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, other people, obviously, you know, sort of uh, candidate Trump would, would frame things this way uh, as well. That's, I think, specious and misleading and uh, a canard. Uh, and uh, and yet there it is, you know, it's sort of a, a pretty prominent argument. And I could imagine, and I hope that this doesn't across, come across as patronizing, if you're not closely following the issues in Ukraine, uh, this might seem like a pretty persuasive argument. We do have problems here at home, and the U.S. has given, you know, roughly $110 billion to Ukraine over the course of the war, and that's a lot of money, and, you know, there are other priorities. All of that is uh, All of that is true, but the idea that could somehow withdraw funding and support for Ukraine and then solve these other issues and that this would be a win-win uh, situation is, 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 is to me a, a kind of gross mischaracterization of, 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 of the current situation. And, and I will say that uh, although there are always politics around foreign policy, this does seem to break a, a longstanding um, tradition going back to the end of World War II where the, the sorts of political posturing you're describing so well, Michael, uh, occurred around many issues, civil rights uh, matters in particular, but generally not around core foreign policy issues. Uh, there was a kind of code of ethic uh, about that, just as there was a code of ethic about not holding up appointments uh, for major military promotions as well. And, and it does appear as if this Congress uh, in the Senate on holding up promotions for a number of months and in the house now in in linking aid to a to a, a strategic area fighting for democracy linking that to another issue uh, it does seem as if that breaks a certain mold that we've had for 50 to 70 years i absolutely agree i mean i think that there is uh and you would know this history much more in much more detail than i would jeremy but there is of course congress sort of standing up to the white house toward the end of the vietnam war and, and kind of pulling the financial plug uh, and, you know, I think that that was painful for the Ford White House. Uh, but, you know, that feels like it was really part of a democratic uh, process at that point with maybe the accident of Watergate behind it. But uh, it does not, to me, resemble what's happening uh, at the present moment. Or, you know, there were times that Congress looked into overreach at the CIA and, and, and sort of reined in the executive branch, the imperial presidency, uh, and there was tension and back and forth and and, and debate then, but uh, you know much more substantive and I think constitutionally um, oriented than what we see uh, at the present moment. To add in another detail here in terms of historical context, it's history that we've all lived through, but uh, it's uh, you know I think important to review. 
another element of what House Republicans are doing is exacting revenge for the first impeachment uh, of Donald Trump, which is, of course, related to Ukraine. Uh, and I'm sure, um, you know, Zelensky was thinking back to that in his visit to Congress uh, today. He was walking the halls of Congress today because Zelensky becomes president of Ukraine in May of 2019 and almost immediately is embroiled in a set of machinations coming from the Trump White House uh, about Trump's own re-election campaign in 2020. And that leads to Trump's impeachment. Of course, we have Hunter Biden, his connection to Ukraine, which is uh, a major Republican uh, talking point. So it's not really that new. I mean, this is now five years of tangled, complicated history between partisan American politics and the country uh, of Ukraine. But it's unbelievably unfortunate that that whole episode in 2019 intersects with the prosecution of the war uh, at the present moment. I wish that that scandal had occurred uh, in uh, Indonesia uh, or in Sri Lanka or in Ecuador or just a country that was not involved in something that's as significant as the war between Russia and Ukraine. But there, too, you kind of see the shadows of partisan politics just, you know, sort of darkening our foreign policy. Absolutely. It's almost as if the um, domestic efforts to manipulate Ukraine for electoral purposes have now created a sort of reverse problem that uh, the Ukraine war becomes a victim of other efforts at manipulation that that are that that are built upon that. Um, Michael, what should we do if if, as seems the case, the money uh, from the United States, the aid, more than one hundred billion dollars that the Ukrainians desperately need, as you described so well, because their supplies are so depleted, uh, if that aid doesn't come through, it certainly looks like it's certainly not going to happen before January if it happens at all. What should we do then if, if one is thinking about this from the perspective of uh, the White House or from one of the major European capitals or from Ukraine's perspective? Uh, what should they do if they don't get this necessary aid? Well, the first thing is not to, not to panic. Uh, the war is where it is. Ukraine is where it is. Uh, due to the valor of its citizens, the good quality of its political and military leadership and to its overall ability to muster support outside of Ukraine's border. So let's put the center of the story where the center of the story should be, which is in Ukraine. And you do not have, you have difficulties of morale at the present moment in Ukraine. Obviously, it's a long and, and brutal war, but you don't have a crisis of morale uh, in, uh, in Ukraine. You have a strong willingness to fight and you have lots of instruments and tools that are there on the ground uh, indigenous to the country. So I would be the last person to say <laughs> that the future of Ukraine is going to be determined uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, and, you know, that's, uh, I think, one uh, significant point. Second point is that um, amid uh, a well-publicized, deservedly well-publicized set of disputes between Hungary and the European Union, Hungary has managed to, you know, sort of take Ukraine out of the debate about EU enlargement uh, in a practical sense. And Hungary is also creating difficulties when it comes to EU funding uh, of, uh, of Ukraine. That's deservedly well publicized, that story. But you also have Germany doubling its financial commitment to Ukraine uh, in the last couple of weeks or the last couple of uh, months. And many other countries, Baltic republics, Poland, uh, other countries are doubling down on their commitment uh, to, to Ukraine. So the story in Washington is important, you know, as Washington weakens, if it does, that will give license to other countries in Europe uh, to weaken, to be sure. Uh, but that's not the story of every European country. And there are lots of other countries supporting Ukraine that are thinking of ways to uh, increase what they're doing. That, I think, is, 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 is significant, uh, too. When it comes to the Biden White House, they have to obviously advocate as best they can for continued funding from Congress. That's clear. And if it doesn't come through in January, they'll have to continue advocating and sort of continue working and 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 not give up on that. But they, too, I think, cannot um, uh, make this the end all and be all, important as it is. Uh, a lot of the connections between Washington and Kiev when it comes to the war are indeed financial, but not all of them. Uh, intelligence sharing, uh, targeting, things that the U.S. military can provide, strategic assistance, you know, wargaming, planning. Uh, all of which is very much ongoing, I think actually increasing uh, uh, since the stalled counteroffensive of the summer of 2023. Uh, that can be ongoing going forward. So it's not as if <laughs> the White House is losing everything. 
uh, if this money uh, doesn't come through. And I suspect that there's a little bit of exaggeration from the Biden White House about how dire things would be if this money didn't come through, that there might be other sources and ways of uh, reconfiguring things, finding new uh, avenues and routes, but they don't want to belabor that point now because it might uh, make Congress less willing to, uh, to provide the supplemental and provide the aid uh, to Ukraine. So, um, you know, you have to um, resource a strategy uh, with real resources. Uh, and if those start to diminish, then you may have to moderate your strategy to a uh, to a degree, but there are many, many pillars on which this support for Ukraine stands. There are fewer than there were a year ago that we have to acknowledge, but there are still many pillars and they can be used and they can be used to create uh, strategic effect. Uh, and uh, Ukraine is not going to give up uh, even if um, uh, even if the going gets more difficult uh, in this regard. So, you know, I hope it's not happy talk. I hope it's not wishful thinking that I'm trying to propose here. But, uh, uh, you know, I think... Um, uh, there are ways of moving past this moment. Uh, and to go back to a point that I mentioned earlier, investments in military production for Ukraine, which are too slow and too piecemeal, and that's uh, been, I think, one of our um, you know debits in terms of how we've approached the war. Uh, but these are going to pay off and they are going to pay dividends in 2025. And so maybe what 2024 is, is a year of patience, you know, sort of waiting. Uh, and uh, we can see a trajectory that will move Ukraine forward, that's not a one-year trajectory, but a two, three, four, five-year trajectory. And so that, too, is something to latch on to. Gosh, Michael, that's that's a very long war that you're talking about. Yeah, I think we need to approach our understanding of this war in decades, not in years. Uh, and that would be true if Russia would be vanquished in some very substantial way on the battlefields of Ukraine uh, in the next couple of months, because the will to fight the war on Russia's side if that will is there, Russia is going to have capacity uh, and somehow the war will uh, go on. And that will is likely to last for uh, for a very, very long time. So we have to be conceptually ready for that. My question is, if you had one piece of advice or maybe plea for our listeners um, as they continue to follow this war, um, obviously with, with varying degrees of, of concentration and attention, um, what would that be? Uh, what, what, what can Americans do to stay informed about this war? I think that it's important to dig into the human stories. And, you know, there's not yet a great film about the war or a great novel. I'm sure it's too soon uh, for that. Uh, but uh, I'll give one example. PBS Frontline has a, a really extraordinary uh, documentary film that's been made about uh, the city of Mariupol. Uh, I think it's the first 20 days or first 10 days uh, of the war, and it really brings forward uh, the human element. So as we get, I wouldn't want to say sidetracked, but as we get preoccupied with questions of Congress and domestic politics and, you know, who did what right strategically over the summer last summer, and what should the right strategy be next year, all of which are crucial questions. But as we get preoccupied by those things, we really can't lose sight of uh, of the human story. And I think that the degree to which we tune into that human story, whether we're talking about the diaspora, Ukrainian populations, whether we're talking about uh, internally displaced people uh, in Ukraine, whether we're talking about just the children uh, of Ukraine, I think that that can remind us what this war uh, is, uh, is truly about. Second point I would make, uh, at a difficult moment in the war, it's important to recall what's gone right and what's gone well, Ukraine is in control of 80% of its territory. City of Kiev is largely safe, even though still uh, under attack. Uh, the Ukrainian economy uh, has muddled through. Ukraine has a network of many of the country's richest and most technolog technologically advanced uh, countries uh, that are still very much willing to support Ukraine, if struggling at times with the details of that support, but still very much willing to support uh, Ukraine. And that's a very strong foundation uh, on which the country rests. So one plea I would have is not to become too uh, uh, engaged or too uh, sensitive in a way to the latest news cycle. The news cycles go up and down. It's a roller coaster of a war, as all wars are. But remember what some of the strengths are. Uh, and remember what some of the good fundamentals are in terms of what Ukraine's uh, position is. Uh, and then finally, as we've discussed, I think, multiple times in these uh, conversations, um, structures of resilience 
uh, and patience. Uh, a plea to think carefully about what those are. You know, in the Civil War, uh, we can kind of go back and uh, tell a simple story about the Civil War as one in which the North was going to win because it had more industrial capacity and because it had the cause of justice on its side, et cetera, et cetera. That's not how it felt during uh, the Civil War. You have draft riots in 1863. You have an extremely contentious and troubling election uh, in 1864, which Abraham Lincoln does win, uh, but it was definitely not a, uh, a given that he would. Uh, and they found ways of carrying through. The United States is not in the war in Ukraine. It's a different situation. Uh, but uh, we do need to think about what creates uh, the possibility of uh, of, uh, of resilience, a strong sense of, 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 of purpose and uh, of, of, of a remembrance and realization of what the big picture uh, is. We know that we tend to lose sight of that in, in many conflicts and that it's not easy, but uh, there are quite a few conflicts in the history of the U.S. where uh, structures of resilience and patience uh, uh, were built up. Uh, and, you know, one plea I would make is to think along those terms. You know, we're very, very good at discussing our problems. We're very, very good at discussing our shortcomings. Uh, let's remember that we also have capacities uh, and uh, lots of sources of strength. And, uh, uh, you know, let's let's keep our focus on that uh, as well. This extremely difficult balance of sober pessimism and plausible optimism. That's, that's, that's the sweet spot that we have to hit, and that's the place where we have to be. Uh, and uh, difficult as I think things are at the moment, I do think it's possible to hit that sweet spot uh, and to remain there for quite a while. Well, Professor Kimmage, I think you've given us a very powerful reminder of the importance of being not only good students of history, but also responsible uh, consumers of media and responsible uh, geopolitical thinkers, as all of us are and in some way, shape, or form. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, today. I hope uh, you and our listeners will continue uh, to share their thoughts with us uh, on these unfolding events um, as, as they happen in real time, and also stay engaged, as always, um, in these uh, tragic um, but uh, vitally important uh, human, human well, Zachary, stories. Zachary and Jeremy, we come full circle. Thank you so much for having me. You mentioned the phrase real, <laughs> real time. Uh, and this takes us back mm -hmm. uh, to the very beginning of our conversation and to your poem, Real People, uh, Real Towns, uh, you know, sort of real places. Academic and political discussion tends towards abstraction. Very fortuitously with your poem, uh, you've reminded us of the, the key value and importance of specificity uh, and of staying in touch with the yes. uh, with the realities of this very terrible war. Yes, I, I think that's so so well said. Uh, well, thank you again for joining us, and, and thank you to our listeners for participating in this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.